In preparation for this homily, I started looking up what the most precious thing on earth was, the most precious material. And of course, when you look something like this up online, it means the most valuable monetarily, what costs the most, which, what has the most monetary value. So I looked up most precious material on earth, and ironically, the most precious material on earth, the most valuable material on earth, is actually antimatter, which is kind of bizarre. Antimatter is the most precious material. Antimatter, I didn't know even existed. It's kind of frightening to think there's something called antimatter that exists in the world. <laughs> but basically, it's uh, the opposite of normal matter. So for example, we have this podium, this ambo, which is made out of matter. We're all made of, out of matter. Little tiny atoms clumped together, making up cells, making up the constructs of the physical reality we live in, right? So antimatter is the opposite of that. It's like a negative number. So instead of having what a normal atom would have, a negative atom or antimatter has positrons, antiprotons, and antineurons. We were to construct uh, this church, for example, out of antimatter would look exactly the same. But what's kind of frightening is if you take one spoonful of normal matter and one spoonful of antimatter and combine them together, they create an explosion of pure light energy that could destroy Manhattan itself. <laughs> so. Obviously, it's very potent stuff, this antimatter. It's also very valuable. It actually takes a ton of money to contain it, sustain it, and keep it from exploding. There's actually a facility in Switzerland, um, and one gram, which we don't even have, is estimated to cost $80 trillion. So very expensive, this antimatter. That's the most precious matter on Earth. Followed up by Californium, <laughs> which is a funny name. Um, it's this nuclear material discovered in, you guessed it, California. They weren't very creative with the name. Um, but it costs 25 to $27 million per gram and is often found in nuclear power plants. The third most precious material on Earth, which we're mostly familiar with, is diamonds. <laughs> kind of bland after hearing about nuclear energy and antimatter. And it costs $55,000 per gram. Now, all of these we see are handled with great care. They're very valuable, either for their potential in discovery, in energy, um, or in seeing how rare they are, like diamonds. And we tend to treat them with much care. We don't just toss diamonds around. We don't throw it in a bag. We acknowledge that it's worth something. It's very expensive, very pricey, very valuable, very precious. Yet how do we handle the Eucharist? How do we approach the Eucharist? The Eucharist? We believe that Christ, the Word of God made incarnate, the Word of God being that through which God spoke everything into being, including antimatter in California, that Christ is that Word made incarnate, made present in the Eucharist, the true body and blood of Christ, the living God, here in this little box, in this tabernacle, here where we celebrate the Mass. How do we approach that? How do we see the Eucharist? What is our understanding of the Eucharist? Now, today we hear two difficult readings. The second one, which uh, speaks about marriage and the church, which I'm not going to talk about, um, but it's an important one. It's very, uh, it can be controversial, but really the Lord is talking about our relationship uh, uh, with the church as compared to that relationship between a man and a woman in marriage. It's actually a really beautiful analogy for the church. But I'm going to talk more about the end of chapter 6 of John, which we've been hearing about for about five weeks now. 
We've been reading through, hearing the gospel uh, passages of John 6 uh, proclaimed and preached about these past couple weeks. And you'll notice that the theme has been consistent, the Eucharist. And you might be sick of hearing about the Eucharist, but brothers and sisters, it's an endless mystery. It's an incredible reality, an incredible mystery, an incredible gift that we receive in faith. And that nourishes us in our identities as beloved by God, as beloved daughters and sons of God. So we notice, though, at the end, at the close, Jesus has finished speaking. He's revealed that I am the living bread, uh, and you must eat of my flesh and my blood to have salvation, to truly live, to live as those who follow me, to live as those who pursue the salvation in my footsteps and imitating me. And how do they respond? But they say, this is a hard saying. Who can accept it? Now, notice they don't say, that's not true, Jesus, you're wrong. Or no, Jesus, that can't be possible. They say, this is a hard saying. Who can accept it? They were with him up to that point. They said, okay, Jesus, you heal some people. You preach about salvation, coming of the kingdom. That sounds great. But then you lost me when you said, we have to eat your body and blood. That's too much. Which makes sense. Jesus, is, Jesus responds to this and says, does this shock you? And for many of us who grew up as Catholics, who grew up uh, in a family uh, raised Catholics, even for some of us who, who really converted into it or maybe grew in our understanding of faith later on in life, uh, it may seem kind of mundane, but it really should shock us. This is an incredible mystery. This is an incredible reality, something that should be core and center in our lives and our identities as Catholics, as Christians, as beloved by God. That we are called to embrace this reality and enter into a deeper mystery, a deeper relationship with the Eucharist. Notice how once Jesus says this, many of them leave. Many of the disciples who have followed him up to this point left. They said, all right, I'm dropping it. That's it. It's enough. It's a hard saying. I can't accept it. We see this in our world, that uh, there are many who have rejected uh, the, the reality of the Eucharist. Many have rejected Christ, that Christ is speaking about himself as well in this. That many reject Jesus and reject that offering, that invitation to enter into that relationship with Christ. And that's because that can't be forced. It's something that we will. We have to accept and we have to receive and we have to pursue in our lives. That we have to make that, that, that specific intention to follow up on that, to follow up on our faith. That we have to be intent on living out who we are as Christians. It can't be something that's passive. It can't be something mediocre. It's something that shocks us that amazes us, that draws us in. And then he turns to Peter and the other apostles, and he says, what about you guys? Are you guys in? And Peter says, you have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? He's basically saying, we've seen behind the veil, Lord. You've revealed to us this great gift, this great mystery. You are the Christ. We believe this. We know this. We can't turn anywhere else. And mind you, these are the apostles that would later abandon Jesus at the Passion, much like these disciples left Jesus because of this hard saying. However, their faith is what sustains them. They're not perfect. We're not perfect in our faith. But there's that will. Yes, Lord, I will to pursue this. I will to be drawn into my faith, into my relationship with you and the Eucharist. And Jesus says himself that it is something that the Father grants us. It's actually two parts, our faith. One is that call of faith, that call to relationship with God, that we are drawn into the Lord, drawn into this mystery of the Eucharist, that it's revealed to us, this is your faith, 
This is what I'm calling you to, this new life, this living bread. And the second part is us willing to say, yes, Lord. I see this, I acknowledge it, and I desire to grow in it, to move towards it, to be drawn in. And this can be difficult because there are many gravities in the world that can pull us away, that can draw us in, whether that be money, pleasure, fame, material things. All kinds of things can pull us away from this. But here we have been uh, uh, privileged to see the beauty of the truth in our Lord Jesus Christ, the beauty and the amazement of the Eucharist, that which will feed us, the scripture that we hear, the living word that pulls us in, draws us into that deeper relationship and understanding of who we are, and that personal relationship we have with our God, the living God, that allows us to have this connection with the Lord. So it comes back to this question, how do we approach the Eucharist? How do we relate to this deep mystery, this deep gift, this incredible, awesome, living bread that sustains us and feeds us? You see that in the Mass itself, there are many things that point to how precious the Eucharist is. We have the tabernacle, which is coated in precious metals, as well as the, the vessels, the ciborium and the chalices, the fancy cups and bowls that hold the body and blood of Christ, are coated in precious metals as well to acknowledge that some of what we hold to be most precious materially is only fit to hold the body and blood of Christ. It doesn't need to be that way. It's that way because it's us acknowledging what we have, that what we have is truly valuable and beautiful. We have music, we have images, we have uh, beauty in our church to represent and raise our minds to this reality that we are here, we're not in some Arby's or McDonald's, we're in a place of worship, we're in God's house. We're encountering the living word here and now at this Mass. That's why we prepare ourselves, we spend time, we dress up, we have the Sunday best, we, we come and we prepare beforehand to really enter into this mystery of the Mass and as we come to receive the Eucharist, we don't do it as though we're receiving vanilla wafers. We do it as though we're receiving the living God. We spend time even wrestling with that, that hard saying, that hard reality, that it's actually really hard to wrap our heads around because it's a mystery. It's a deep and incredible mystery, the incarnation present, our Lord Jesus Christ present in the Eucharist. So I encourage us uh, as we go forward not to leave John chapter 6 behind, even though we're finishing preaching about it and, and hearing about it for this year, but to allow it to rest in our hearts, to not become uh, jaded or, or mediocre in our relationship with the Eucharist, but to constantly ask for that gift of faith, faith in the Eucharist, growth in that relationship with the Eucharist, growth in that relationship with living word, the scripture, and of course, with our understanding of who we are as being saved and loved by our God, who we are as bearing the name Christian, and who we are as a Eucharistic people. Amen.